Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoyed the message. Well, this morning, uh, I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, Instead of just kind of like giving you uh, kind of a 35-minute presentation on all of my thoughts and journal entries from the scripture, uh, I want to invite you guys into this space. And so here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to reread the text, and I want to uh, encourage you to read along. And as you read along, uh, to kind of notice for you this morning what stands out. What pops off the page? What's peculiar? What maybe you haven't noticed before? And I want to strongly encourage you to not go in with like your preconceived ideas. I've heard this story before. I've heard a few sermons about it. But instead, to go, God, today... Would you speak to me in a new and fresh way? Because we are convinced that God wants to, to do something new in our life, to invite us into deeper waters. And for many of us, especially if we've grown up maybe in kind of around the church or maybe in a religious society, that what happens is we have these ruts like on a road where just the tra- like our, our tires just naturally get put in it and we just kind of go down this. So we put it in an autopilot and we often miss out on the freshness of what God's doing right here, right now, in this moment. So we're going to reread the text. And then what I encourage you to do is if you have a pen, um, maybe jot down, circle, highlight. Is there something that stands out? Okay? Don't, don't ri- like, kind of push against the temptation to feel like you got to, like, come up with, like, 20 other things. And then I actually really encourage you to push against the temptation for you to kind of go back to recall and think about all the sermons that maybe you've heard about this, and you're like, oh, I got all these cool ideas. No, 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 no. Right now. We don't, we don't care if John Piper speaks to you. We don't care if you've heard the Stephen Furtick sermon. What we care is, is the Spirit speaking you, to you today, right now. Okay? And so my poor community group, uh, we, they've been my guinea pigs uh, this week, and so they're like, I already know where this is going. But we're going to do it anyway. So, you ready? Whew. Fresh lens. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification, each containing 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim, and then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter, and they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first and then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you 
have kept the fine wine until now. And Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. There's so much. Like, and be very honest with you, um, even just kind of processing the text this week, there's so many things to spotlight in this. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of give you just the focus of like what Jesus is really revealing. We'll give you kind of the target up front uh, and what just what kind of led up to this. And then here's all I want to do. I want to highlight a few of the characters in this story to see their response and what Jesus is doing specifically for them. And I think in this story, we're really going to kind of, uh, in some ways, be invited into two things. One, to get to really discover how amazing Jesus is and who he shows himself to be in this story. And then two, I think that each one of us will probably identify with one of the characters in the story at some level. And so maybe multiple. So that's kind of what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of fly through this. Uh, but here, here's the focal point. Here's what this story is ultimately revealing. This is what it's trying to communicate. If you want to like zero in one sentence, here it is. That Jesus has come as the true bridegroom who ushers in the new covenant for his bride, the church. That Jesus is ultimately the groom. And that we, his, his people, his church, that we are his bride. And that he's setting for us a new covenant, a new form of relationship. Or maybe to put it this way, is that Jesus has come as a loving and pursuing groom. He wants us to see this early on. Who is establishing a new covenant and, a, and forming a new relationship with his bride, his people, the church. Now, there's a lot here that we could unpack, and I'm just going to kind of give it to you just in about 30, 45 seconds. At the beginning of this story and this book, what, what we see is we see God speaks the world into existence. He creates all things with his words. He reaches into the dirt, forms mankind, breathes life into them. Why? Adam and Eve are created to have a relationship with the God of the universe, to like actually have intimacy, not, not, not relationship as like a theory or a philosophy or an idea, but to actually know the God of the universe, to walk with him in the cool of the day, to speak to him, to have him speak back to you. There's this intimacy. And we make it three pages. Like that's how far we get in. Three pages of this book before we screw it all up. And we ultimately look at God and say, thank you, but no thanks. I'm kind of going to do it my way. I think I know best. I've been on earth for a couple days now. And in that moment, what you and I did is we committed treason against a high king. That we, we kind of essentially gave him the proverbial middle finger and said, nope, I want to be on the throne of my own life. And in that moment, it fractured the relationship. It broke it. Sin entered the world. And listen, every single one of us, we feel the effects of that today. Right? Like, you, you know that. You don't watch the news or flip through your social media for very long before you're like, yeah, it's super broken. Or maybe put it this way, like many of us, like we have there's a lot of kids. Like our, the rim is growing rapidly just by reproduction, okay? We have so many kids. And so, um, and here's the deal. Like for, you don't have to hang out or go, go hang back, back in the village. 
You don't hang out with a two-year-old very long before you kind of step back and you're like, dang, that's like the most evil creature on planet Earth right there. (laughs) But what's interesting is no one teaches a kid to be selfish. No one teaches them to bite. No one teaches them to yell, this is mine. No one teaches them to hit like it's, it's in them. And this sin is passed on from mother to daughter, father to son, and it's in each one of us like a plague that's killing us, a cancer. And the entire Old Testament is this reoccurring story that God sees us in our brokenness. He sees us in our helplessness, and he loves us enough to pursue us, to chase after us. And though time and time again, our actions lead us, what we think into freedom leads us into slavery, that God continues to pursue us. And so when you see this, you move from Genesis into Exodus, you see this huge story about the people of God that have actually found themselves in bondage, in slavery, And God chooses to come and rescue his people and lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness where he makes for his people a covenant. And he gives them the wedding vows on Mount Sinai that they're going to to kind of follow as they step into this marriage in the promised land. That was the language the Jews used. That's why weddings were such a big, big deal. They were a shadow of this bigger story that was being told. And so the problem is is that the Israelites, the people of God, time and time again, they keep breaking their end of the agreement. They're consistently unfaithful. When God is consistently faithful and consistently pursues, there's even this wild book in the Old Testament where we see this prophet, we meet this prophet named Hosea, and God calls him to like, to, to, go, to pursue this woman, his, this wife, this bride, and she's actually in prostitution. She's in slavery, human trafficked. And so Hosea goes after her and rescues her and redeems her and buys her back and marries her, pursues her, lavishes love on her. And you think like, man, that's wow, what a redemption story. And time and time again, over and over again, Hosea's wife leaves him keeps going back into prostitution over and over again, and Hosea keeps chasing after her. And it's like this wild story, like, gosh, that would never happen. I would never do that. And you have this moment where you kind of get sparked and you're encouraged a little bit, and you're like, oh, I'm so motivated by Hosea's love. Like, I'm, I hope to be like Hosea. And then kind of the end of the book, you find out, no, you're the prostitute. Like, you Although God continues to pursue you and chase after you, you continually are unfaithful. You continually chase lovers so much less wild than Jesus. And it leads us back into slavery over and over again. In this covenant, there's something that seems to be broken in it, namely us. And so Jesus, as this bridegroom, is coming to reestablish a new covenant for his bride, the body. And it takes place in a massive wedding story where something goes really wrong. Okay? So that's just to give you some context. Uh, I know, that was a lot. So we're going to kind of run through this really fast. So uh, I don't have to, like, tell you. Weddings, you can probably guess, really big deal. Uh, these were not like our two-hour, maybe with an extra hour and a half reception kind of weddings. This was like, I mean, this is a, a full week. It was full-fledged. Like everyone, like it is a giant party. 
And uh, it's in Cana, which is uh, like a flyaway city, uh, middle of nowhere. And uh, it's a very, this is important, we'll kind of loop back in here. It's a very Jewish crowd, okay? What that means is the story that I just shared, whether it's about the Exodus story, the Genesis, or even the prophet Hosea, they would have known very, very well. And up to this point, they've been stuck in a system where they've been constantly trying to prove themselves to God to be worthy of his love, okay? And then we've got a couple of people here. And so let's, let's look at these characters of the story. The first one that I want to highlight this morning uh, is Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, which, fun fact, her name's never mentioned here, okay? Um, it's just mother of Jesus. And in verse 4, it says... Uh, sorry, Mary comes to Jesus and is like, hey, we have a massive problem. Like, there's a big issue. Like, there's a lot at stake. This isn't just, hey, we ran out of refreshments. Like, I'm talking the entire pride of this family. Like, the trajectory of the life of this bride and groom. Because all of a sudden, hospitality, one of the highest values in their culture, if, like, they can't meet that expectation with food and for drink, you're talking shame enters into their story instantly. Job opportunities, missed out. Like there's even, there's a Jewish law that the in-laws, if, if the groom doesn't provide like enough refreshments and hospitality and wine, that the in-laws could actually sue uh, the groom uh, for shame upon their daughter and shame upon their family by adjacent, like the whole village. Like this would have been a big talk of the town. And so there's just a lot that's happening here. And so Mary goes, hey, we got an issue. They're out of wine. And Jesus' response in verse 4 is, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Jesus is asking, how does this involve me? Why, why Mary, are you coming to me with this issue? Why, why are you bringing it to me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's a lot here, but just because I know it's a little confusing, Jesus is communicating when he says his hour, what Jesus is meaning is he's talking about his mission, his point of what he came to earth to die, that God wraps himself on human, in human flesh. He walks on earth for 33 years teaching you and I what it means to be fully human and fully alive, but he has a mission, an hour that's set before him where he knows that he's going to walk up a hill that's not his to walk up to carry a cross that wasn't his to carry, and he's going to be crucified on a cross, our death penalty for our treason, and that all the judgment of God is going to land on Jesus, and he's going to be placed into a tomb, and three days later he's going to walk out of the grave proving that he has the power over sin and death and all of our shame. So he knows that's coming. He's like, but it's not right now. It's not my hour. And so, there, you, there you mentioned this, uh, and all of you, your ears perked up as soon as we saw it. Uh, what is this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, this is really important culturally. Uh, he's not being disrespectful at all. Um, if you even think about John 19, Jesus is on the cross. He sees Mary. He uses the same word, woman. And he says this, and he, and he connects John, the author, to his, his mother. And he's like, hey, he's going to take care of you. And, and like, you're going to be his mom, and he's, you're going to be your son. And you guys are going to, like, it's very, like, he is caring. It's very endearing, okay? It's not disrespectful. What Jesus is doing with Mary is he is redefining his relationship with her. Okay, up to this point, 
He's called her mother. And for the very first time here, he calls her woman. He's redefining this relationship. If you want to kind of boil it down, here's what he's saying. He says, Mary, you've seen me as your son, but will you trust me as your savior? For 30 years, I've been your little boy, but do you really believe that I'm the Messiah? And and so this is like, wow, it's beautiful. And so even in this new covenant that Jesus is, is bringing, you see quickly there is a new identity that is offered. You see, you see him as a son, but will you trust him as a savior? And I love her response here uh, is do whatever he tells you. Like, it's like she doesn't even respond to Jesus. She just like walks out, she looks at the servant, she says, do whatever he says, um, which is super cool. And I would also offer is maybe the best advice that's ever been given uh, in the scripture and in life. And so if somebody's like, hey, I don't know what to do, you're just like, I just do whatever Jesus says. I think that's probably a good place to start. And so this also, fun fact, if you, for those of you that are real nerdy, uh, this is an echo, John would have been specific about this, to Genesis 41, where Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, uh, there's a famine, Joseph's like, I can fix this, and the Pharaoh looks and goes, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. And then Joseph ends up saving an entire people group from famine. And so this is a very much a nod that Jesus is the greater Joseph, that Jesus is the greater Joseph. Okay, so, uh, yeah, cool. So there's Mary, who has this, this trust, this new identity, this new role that she steps into, and she trusts Jesus. Okay, the second group of people that I want you to see, and this is honestly probably the people that kind of like hit me the most this week, uh, is the servants here in this story. That Jesus, he responds. Like he actually, like, he still steps into the moment which I love that because it communicates something very specific. And I want you, many of you need to hear this today, that Jesus actually cares about the things that you care about, even if they feel small. That Jesus cares about these things. He sees his mother and he steps into this moment and he looks at the servant and he says, he says, fill the jars with water. Okay? And so they filled them to the brim. Jesus doesn't ask them to fill it to the brim. They just do that. Like, they go above and beyond. I love that. They're like, oh, I don't know what we're doing, but let's go for it. If we're going to do it, we're going all the way in. And then he said, now draw out, uh, draw some of it out, and then take it to the head waiter. And they did. They're just obedient, like radically obedient. Now, this is something I've been thinking about this week. Um, in my mind, I don't know why, I've always just thought, like, okay, there's these big stone basins, and they're, you know, about the size of probably like a bathtub, and they're like, fill them up, and it's like, okay, cool, go grab the water hose, Jimmy, and then, uh, and then they just kind of pour the, like, they fill them up, and it just, I don't know, it took 30 minutes or so, um, or just turn on the spigot, and, and it never dawned on me that that's, they didn't have plumbing back then. Like, to get water, you had to go to the town well which I don't, I don't know how far that would have been. An average person can carry, like especially if it's miles, a gallon, maybe two gallons of water. So I don't know how, we don't know how many servants there are, but what I do know is all of a sudden they're grabbing their empty buckets and they're making a way towards town and they're filling these buckets and they're headed back and they pour it and then they're back and, they, and, and they're willing to not just get it halfway, they do it fully. And then it just kind of dawned on me, at what point do the servants have that moment where they're thinking, they're like, what the heck are we doing? Like, we don't, we don't know this man. 
And here we are, we're like, we're taking all of these trips back and forth and taking this water and we're, and we're filling this bucket. And like, this is ridiculous. Like, this isn't, like, we know wine. You don't use water for wine. Like, this is wildly inefficient. This is ineffective. Like, what are we doing? Like, we're, this is ridiculous. And at one point, like, I have to believe that they're begging and hoping for a miracle but at some point in the journey, they had to have gotten discouraged. And go, this is not how this works. This doesn't make any sense. I feel like a fool trusting this process. And maybe this morning, some of us walk into this place needing a miracle. Needing a breakthrough in your marriage. Needing a miracle when it comes to your kids or in your job or with your coworkers and your family as we're about to step into the holidays. Maybe it's your health. I think many of us, myself included, we step into this moment needing something from Jesus and it just feels like it's taking too long. Like, God, are you serious? You could just snap your fingers. They could instantly be filled with wine. Why is this taking so long? Why are you doing it like this? And I think Jesus is inviting us to really to trust the process. And I uh, had a conversation in a coffee this week with one of the community group leaders, Dwayne, and uh, who's gotten really into, I don't know if Dwayne or Rebecca are here, but they're really into agriculture. And he just starts sharing about trees and stuff. And I'm like leaning in. I'm like, I'm captivated by his love and passion for trees. And um, I don't, I, just thinking about my own life and, and trying like to, to walk in daily obedience to Jesus and, and wanting there to be shifts and changes in my own heart, my own life, my own relationships and going, hey, we're like weeks in and it feels like nothing's shifting, nothing's changing. And God just going, hey, will you trust the process? Like fruit in your life isn't instant. We live in an instantaneous world where we love to, I mean, we have Instagram and we microwave everything. We want it instantly. And so all of a sudden we want life change and fruit in our life and, and we give it a go for two or three days. We hit the gym, you know, for, for a week and we're like, oh, oh ugh. it's way the same. It doesn't work. Uh, and you give up. And so... And what Jesus, I think, invites us to is, hey, in the process. And then when agriculture, like a seed, goes into the ground, it dies. That's wild. And then there's this invitation for us to join in with what God's doing. Only God can grow a tree, but we, we cultivate the ground and we water it. And guess what? You go to bed and you come back outside and there's nothing there. And so you water and you cultivate and you go back to bed and you come back out and there's still nothing. And just like your own physical growth, you don't feel yourself growing, but over time, all of a sudden, there's something that shoots out of the ground, and you begin to get a little bit of hope, and then the process starts back over again, and then you water, and you water, and you water, and it may be years before you see the fruit. And even just reminded that in agriculture, that right now we're in a season where uh, about half of our trees in San Antonio, all the leaves are about to change colors. This is my favorite of the seasons. Uh, it lasts for about three hours, called fall. And so, um, and the leaves fall. They'll fall on the ground. And then these trees are, are barren. And so it's like rock fruit trees. They're like, they're barren. And they look, over time, dead. And it gets cold, kind of, outside. And 
These trees look dead. But if you scratch them, you start to realize that there's, there's actually life there. And that if the leaves don't fall and if it doesn't kind of begin to insulate, then the capacity for the tree doesn't grow. And if that cold doesn't come, the winter doesn't come and the leaves don't fall, the fruit's not as sweet, it's not as big, and it's not as good. That God in the waiting is actually building in the tree the capacity for fruitfulness. And so, just, I don't know, that was extra. If you needed that, I just think it's beautiful, and I love that Jesus involves us in the miracle. He didn't need to, but he lets them, he lets them carry the water. He lets them fill it to the brim. And guess what? It's just them and the disciples that experience the miracle. Like, no one else knows. Um, and yeah, and I love that the water pots are filled to the brim because that means there's no room to add anything else. Meaning, this is cool, Jesus wasn't going to add something to the water to make it wine. He was going to transform it. He was literally going to change the molecular structure of what was in there to now become something new. In this new covenant, there is a new power. Uh, someone else I want to highlight real fast is the people at the party. Uh, we don't, they don't even get really a shout out. We just have to assume they're there. Uh, but I do think there's something cool here. Um, we do know, like I said earlier, they're a very religious group of people. And in verse 6, I want to just spotlight this because some of you kind of saw this and it stood out. This stood out to me too. Verse 6, it says, Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. And once again, just kind of a flyby statement. Like, yeah, cool, big deal. Um, what's interesting, once again, super religious. Okay? They'd bought into the system. Church, every time the doors were open, Sunday school if you got it, small groups if you got it, doing the Bible reading plan, like we're in. And the better we do this, the better our attendance is, the better our standing with God is, right? That's how this works. So much so that you're going to a wedding that you're going to make sure that you enter into the feast purified. And so you've got these six stone like water jars, once again, about the size of a bathtub, that you would, they would use to wash you ceremonially so you could step into the space religiously clean. Now, what's interesting is that uh, John points out that there are six of these things. Um, does anybody know, biblically, what the number six stands for, what it means? What is it? Imperfect incomplete. And Jesus is going to restore it. He's going to fill these objects with wine, the sign of this new covenant. And uh, what he's communicating, and I think this is wildly brilliant to everyone who's paying attention has eyes to see. Your religious system, your pageantry, the games that you are playing are incomplete. They will not satisfy you. It's not going to work. And I've come to fill them with new wine of a new covenant and invite you into something so much deeper. Not into religious acts, but into a deep relationship back like it was in the Garden of Eden. And many of us, listen, I, I, I get it. This is, this is our MO. 
Like we step into this space, and for many of us, when we think about walking with Jesus, the way we picture this thing is it's a giant list of do's and don'ts, rules, regulations, religion. Like, listen, we live in San Antonio, one of the most religious cities in the U.S., and so we get caught up. Like, we feel bad. Like, we, like God's disappointed us if we, if we don't show up or have perfect attendance or do X, Y, or Z. So we're constantly performing for God, exhausted, overwhelmed. And we get to this point where we're like, man, like, I feel like all of this is a bunch of shoulds and shouldn'ts, and I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. And many of us, just real talk, if we haven't gotten to the point already, we get and we look at this giant list of do's and don'ts, and we're like, I, I don't think I want to be a part of this, but I don't know where else to go. And there's a lot of this stuff that I, that I want to do, but I can't, and I'm not allowed to. There's a lot of things I don't want to do, but I have to do. And I think it gets to this point where what I think the scripture here is trying to see is like John's inviting us to discover the beauty of Jesus. And when we see him for who he is, when we see him for the bridegroom, when we bask underneath his waterfall of his grace and his mercy and his love and his beauty, when we see that it's actually a relationship that we're invited into, then we look at the religious system and go, you know what? I don't want to be a part of that. No, thank you. I'm invited into something so much deeper that's transforming me. And I'm not just performing. I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I'm already accepted. Now I get to live in that truth. I don't have to do any of this. I get to. Because I don't have to, I don't have to buy my wife flowers. I get to. I don't have to make out with my wife. I get to. It shifts when you see it in the context of a relationship. And these religious people missed it. In this new covenant, there is a new freedom. A freedom that Christ would say it is for freedom that I've set you free. That I'm inviting you into this new covenant. Then a couple other quick characters. Uh, the head waiter here, super interesting. Um, I mentioned it early, Susie. Uh, he's like, man, this is like no one saves the best for last. Like you, 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 you kind of lead with image management, and then after everyone's kind of taste buds are dulled a little bit, then you kind of roll in the next best. And uh, he's like, no one. No one saves the best for last. And I love it. Average wine would have still been a miracle. And Jesus says, that's is not who he is. And I think maybe some of you today just need to be, just need to receive this truth. That the best is yet to come. And God is not holding out on you. He is not holding out on you. Like the best is what he has saved for you. It may not look like your best. And it may not fit the storyline or the timeline that you have, but it's the best, and he can be trusted. Uh, and then the groom, who doesn't get a whole lot of attention, just the fact that he gets pulled aside, and the head waiter's like, what the heck, this is crazy, like, what are you doing? Like, uh, you should have led with this wine. And um, I wonder, just thinking about the shame culture and the hospitality, how much he knew and how much he was involved in. What was at stake for this groom and this bride, their future? Like if he even knew, I don't know. 
If he was stressed out, not present in his wedding, worried, and all of a sudden, this head waiter, like, I don't, I don't know when it turned into wine. That's, that's another crazy thing. Like, was it on the way to the head waiter? Like, like I don't know. And this head waiter, you know, beckons for the groom. And I said, like, oh, here it goes. This is it. Party's over. And he pulls him aside, and he's like, hey, what are you? You did this backwards. And it's like, oh, all the fears are starting to be confirmed. Like, you saved the best for last. And all of a sudden, for this groom, his shame and all the potential for his shame turns into high honor. And he's honored before all of his guests. His reputation, like now, it precedes him. It exceeds like what they thought. I mean, that's just wild. I love this beautiful piece. And so for the married people, maybe you need to see this. A marriage with Jesus present can still run into trouble. But with Jesus, there is extraordinary hope. There's extraordinary hope. And the glory of Jesus is found here, I think, in his compassion. This miracle full of compassion. The wine, not absolutely necessary. No one would have died if they would have drank water. All at risk was embarrassment, reputation, shame, and perhaps the bank account of the bridal couple. And Jesus counted that enough to do his first sign. Oh, he's so good. The disciples, they get to discover his beauty. Right, you mentioned that. It says uh, in uh, verse, uh, yeah, 11, I think. Uh, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cain of Galilee. He revealed his glory or meaning the people around him discovered his beauty. They got to see him for the treasure that he promises to be. And his disciples believed him, so they deepened their trust in him. They already, oh my gosh, they like left everything to follow this guy. There's probably about four, maybe five of the disciples, not all 12 are there yet. He hasn't called them. But these guys are like, yeah, we throw our nets into the boat and let's go. And, and all of a sudden, here's this moment, like their trust is deepened, which I think communicates to you and I, that this is a journey. This is a process. Will you trust the process? And will you celebrate the miracles? In this new covenant, there's a new faith. And then the story, all, it's all about this guy named Jesus who apparently loves to celebrate and is a really fun guy. That Jesus cares about the small things that we care about. And that Jesus came in this image and this story to bring a new wine. A new wine. And with it, a new covenant, a new identity, a new freedom, a new power, a new faith. That wine was always a symbol of covenant. It was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of grace. And I love that that's the symbol that Jesus uses to express his kingdom. That this is the sign of my covenant. That's why, like you think about Lord's Supper, Jesus pulls the guys together, one last meal before he heads to the cross, and he grabs the wine, he grabs a cup of wine, he says this, like this, this is wine, and this represents, it's gonna represent my blood for you that's gonna be spilt out, and it's, 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 it's a symbol of a new covenant, a relationship filled with joy 
and graciousness and partying and freedom and identity and power. And those four or five disciples, when Jesus picked up that cup of wine, would have been like, I remember the wedding. And so then Jesus closes with saying this. He's like, I, I won't drink of the vine until I see you again. Oh, the Hebrew mind. But like you're using wedding language. Jesus, you're saying that your kingdom's like a wedding and that you're leaving and you're going to prepare a place like a groom would and that one day you're coming back for your bride. I see what you're doing, Jesus. I see what you're inviting us into, Jesus. This isn't a game of a bunch of rules and regulations. This is intimacy like we've never experienced before. That all, this is the wedding of all weddings, that our marriages here on earth are just shadows pointing to a greater wedding and marriage to come. Oh, the bridegroom in this story, incomplete. He didn't do his job. The religious system, incomplete. The water, incomplete. But Jesus Jesus was not. He is everything that he promises and everything that is true. Church, I think the invitation, maybe for me today, is to see Jesus for the groom that he is, the treasure that he is, the beauty that he promises, that he puts on display the invitation that he invites us into. And then the question maybe for us is, will we trust the process and will we celebrate the miracles? Even if they're not how we thought they should look or in our timing. He is, listen, if you hear anything today, hear this. Jesus is absolutely everything and more that he promises to be and that he is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. And when I choose to trust Jesus, just like the servants, I don't have to fully understand. I don't have to know it all. I don't have to have every step because he's good and he can be trusted. So in this next 120 seconds, would you just sit with Jesus and asking these two simple questions? God, what are you saying to me today? What's he inviting you into? What's he whispered to your heart? What's highlighted in the scripture? And then what or how do you get to live based upon what he's inviting you into? So take this time, journal, 120 seconds for you just to sit in the presence of Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.
Spring. 